Well, growing up, I always loved to hear stories about my dad's time in college. And the reason for that is my dad had a pretty atypical college experience because he was a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. So along with taking classes and earning a degree in engineering, he got to do cool things like spend his summers on ships and learn how to jump out of perfectly good flying planes and other kind of fun things that you don't typically associate with college. And one of the interesting things about hearing about my dad's college experience was always hearing about the rules that he had to follow. See, as you might expect in the Naval Academy when they're training you to become an officer in our armed services, there are some certain rules that you must follow as a student. And my students never have to follow these rules. There are rules like saying yes, sir, when they see a commanding officer, or following a direct order right away. My students don't do that. But there were some other rules that, well, maybe less expected, still kind of made sense to me. One of the things that my dad had to do was he had to be able to make his bed so well that you could bounce a quarter off the sheets. That's how tight those hospital corners had to be. And he also had to be able to clean his room so well, for those of you with young children, imagine this, clean his room so well that a commanding officer could put on a white glove and could go to the top of a light switch and swipe it and there would be nothing on his finger. That's pretty impressive. And while those rules were a little strange, you could kind of see where it's important that you have a you know, squared together Marine or, or Navy um, sailor, and so those kind of made sense. And there are some other rules which I really was a little bit perplexed by. There was, for instance, one of the things that my dad had to do was he had to memorize all of the movies that were playing at the local theater and their showtime and be able to recite them on command. He also had to be able, every day, he had to memorize the menu at the mess hall and be able to recite that on command. And he had to memorize the sports scores and statistics and be able to recite them on command. And it always kind of surprised me as I was growing up and I would hear my dad tell these stories of the rules that he had to follow, why? he was so willing to follow them. Because my dad was a strong, independent, intelligent person, and quite frankly, some of those rules just seemed silly. They didn't seem to have a purpose. And I thought, why would my dad not only follow these rules, but do them without complaint? I never heard him call them silly or impractical. He just willingly and obediently followed the commands that he had been given. And I wondered about that until one day I was talking with my dad. I can still, I still imagine it. We were standing in my parents' kitchen and I was talking to my dad, this strong, tough Marine. And he told me with tears in his eyes how much he loved our country and how much he loved the freedom that our country provided and what an honor he considered it to fight alongside men and women in defense of it. See, my dad followed his commands. My dad followed those rules because he was motivated by love. And so he was willing to do whatever was asked of him in order to bring honor and to respect the country that he served. In our passage today, John talks about a far greater love and a far superior 
set of commands. So if you haven't already, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue our study in this wonderful book. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6, and John starts with this. Verse 1, my little children, can you just hear the affection? Can you just hear the care and the benevolence that he has? My little children, my beloved ones, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now we have to think back and think these things, what things is John talking about? When he says, I'm writing these things to you, what has John just been writing to these people that he loves so much? And he's been writing, if you remember Heather taught last week, what he was writing about is the fact that sin is real, that there is darkness and light, and that we as obedient followers of Christ need to walk in the light. And he continues, I'm writing these things. I'm telling you that sin is real. I'm telling you that sin is important, that you need to take it seriously so that you, those who I love and treasure, that you, these little children, may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the one who keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, by this keeping of his word, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. As we start this passage, as I mentioned, we see John very quickly gets personal. John, John very quickly turns from this theoretical, philosophical discussion of does sin exist and does it still matter if we've been saved? Do we still need to worry about sin? And he turns from that mental discussion. He says, but you, those who I love, please pay attention to this. Please hear the love and care that I have for your souls. He says that you are my little children, this term of affection, and he wants to address something of utmost importance because he, he turns from talking about we to saying I. This is why I, the one who loves you, writes to you. It's not just an intellectual clarification. He's not just trying to correct their theology. He cares about their life and how they as Christians are living. And he says with the affection and care of a pastor, I am writing to you. I care about you so much and I want you to know that you should not sin. I want you to not sin. We need to make sure that as we look at this passage and we see the seriousness and the directness and the personal care and attention that we hear what John is saying here. He is saying that we, just like the individuals that he was writing to, those that he loved, that we should pursue holiness and not sin. Or in other words, as I put it in point number one, we need to make sure that we don't trivialize your sin. Don't trivialize your sin. Don't diminish it. Don't minimize it. 
my daughter was looking over my notes last night as I was putting final touches, and she was like, what does trivialize mean? And she's probably right, watching right now, and she's going to love that I talked about her. Really, she loves it. She's not at that teenage stage yet where she's like, mom, she loves when I talk about her. What does trivialize mean? It means, I was like, it means make small. It means to take something that's serious and to minimize it, to say, well, it's not really important. And John makes it very clear, this is important because these are my instructions to you, those that I love. And I'm just going to be blunt. I'm just going to say it straight out. You need to not sin. That's what he's telling them. Previously, John addressed that others shouldn't deceive themselves, right? He talks about, look, don't be, don't be caught in this web of deception where we say, hey, you shouldn't, we can walk in the light but not really be in the light. And we can walk in the light and still sin. That's okay. He says, don't, don't let those other people deceive themselves. And now he's saying, but you, you who I love, do not sin. That they need to take their sin seriously because God takes it seriously. And Heather did such a great job of talking about this last week, where she talked about the importance of walking in light and not in darkness. And yet, ladies, sisters, I think that some of us, sometimes in the church, we get so used to this concept of sin that it's just this thing that's out there. Oh, yes, there is this thing called sin, and Christ died for it. And we need to make sure that we take that concept and we personalize it. I am a sinner. And not only am I a sinner, but I, am, I have sinned. And I need to recognize that that sin is important to God, that God takes that sin seriously. That this isn't just a theoretical construct. This isn't just a, a theological term. It is something that we do. We sin. And when we sin, there is a fracture. There is a fissure in our relationship with God because God is in the light. And when we sin, we are in darkness. We need to make sure that we just don't think about sin and this kind of amorphous thing that's out there, but we personalize it and we think, how have I sinned today? Not how have I sinned sometime at one point in my life, but what have I done today that goes against what God is calling me to do? That careless word that you spoke as you tried to get out the door and your children just weren't cooperating with you. That unkind thought that you had as that person, as you drove to church tonight, cut you off, and you thought, well, that person obviously doesn't know how to drive. That is sin. Those minute things we tend to dismiss because we think they're small, because we don't experience the consequences of them immediately. But sisters, that was not always the case. We can look in the Bible and we can see that there were times where people immediately experienced consequences for what we would think are little sins. Even the fact that we have that word, little sins. There is no sin that is little. If you sin, you are in violation of your God's commands. And you look throughout the Bible and you think of Moses. Do you know why Moses didn't get to go in the promised land? Because he struck a rock instead of speaking to it. God told him, speak to this rock and have water come forth. And he decided, I know better, I'm going to strike the rock because that's what I did in the past. And God said, that shows a lack of faith in who I am and what I am able to do. That, that sin that seems so small had grave and serious consequences. Saul 
Saul sacrificed. He performed a sacrifice, something that we would think is so good, but he wasn't supposed to. He did not have the authority from God to perform that sacrifice. And that caused, because he was unrepentant, that caused an irrevocable rupture in his relationship with God. Or you think of even when we started, when we were studying Samuel, and you think about how there were priests who were carrying the ark on a cart, but God had told them, you carry that ark on poles out of reverence and honor to me. And they put it on a cart out of convenience, out of thinking that they knew what was best. And when that cart took a little tumble, they reached out to study it, and God struck them dead. He struck them dead. The wages of sin is death. The only reason we, do, we tend to trivialize our sin, the reason we tend to minimize it and make it small is because we don't experience those consequences immediately. But you and I, when we sin, we deserve to be struck down dead. That is serious. And we need to take our sin seriously. We need to recognize that whether we experience them immediately or not, that there are severe consequences for our sin. And that each and every sin impacts our relationship with our Heavenly Father, which means we need to strive hard not to sin. We need to work hard that to make sure that our lives are increasingly holy and not sinful. Because that is what God desires for us. And I know that's heavy. That can seem really harsh. But thank God, John doesn't end his letter there. In fact, in that same verse, he continues on. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, right, he recognizes there is going to be sin. You are going to sin. Here is the good news. You have an advocate with the Father. Who is that advocate? It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's not only the advocate, he is the propitiation for our sins. John turns from focusing on the damage of sin and the seriousness of sin to say that there is hope and there is restoration for you. And it is because of Jesus Christ. And we need to point to treasure Christ's work for you. We need to treasure what Christ has done on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin and what Christ continues to do. John talks about two different aspects of Christ's work in these verses. And we're going to start with the second one. We're going to start with this word that, except for the fact that I've been studying this passage, I probably haven't said in the last year. He is the propitiation for our sin. The propitiation. That's not a common word. We don't usually use that in our everyday life. But you know what that means? That means that Christ is the atonement. That Christ is the sacrifice that that penalty that was ours, that the wages of sin was death, the one person who did not earn that penalty was Jesus Christ because he lived a sinless life. And yet for you and for me, our Savior went to the cross and he paid that penalty on our behalf. 
He was mocked and scorned. He gave up the riches of heaven. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, as it says in Philippians. But he gave himself up and he bore that penalty. And it wasn't like he did it because we were so lovely, right? In 1 John 4.10, it talks about why, John uses the same word, this propitiation, and says, why would Jesus do this? Why would he pay the sacrifice, the penalty that we had earned? And it says this, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. If you want to know what love is, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because God loved you, because God loved me to such an extreme, to that immeasurable, almost unimaginable depth of love, he paid the penalty. He sent his son to die on a cross even while, as it says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us, even while we were sinners, even while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. He took that punishment on himself in our stead. And it's important to clarify, and I know that for many of you, this is not going to come as a surprise, but when John talks about propitiation for our sins, he says something that could be a little confusing. So I just want to take a moment and clarify. He says it's not only for our sins, right? It's not only for those who believe in him, who he's writing to, but also for the sins of the whole world. And as Pastor Mike is fond of saying, that means all without distinction, not all without exception. In other words, the only way to be saved is by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved because not everyone will come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. He is the only means of salvation, but not everyone will be saved, because not everyone will come to that place of turning from their sins and saying, Lord, I'm going to take up my cross and follow you. As it says in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Everyone in this world, the only way they can be saved is because the perfect son of God paid the penalty for their sins. And if they repent and put their trust in him, then they will be saved. So that's one aspect of Christ's work that we need to treasure, that he has paid the penalty on our behalf, that he has paid the atonement, right? That he is the atonement, that he has made the sacrifice. But there's a second aspect of Christ's work that John writes about. He says it at the end of verse one, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Think about that. The one who took my punishment that I deserved, the one who died the death that I should have died, he stands before the righteous judge and he advocates, he pleads on my behalf. And I think this can be hard for us to grasp. 
I think it is hard for us to grasp the magnitude of the love and the, 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 the sacrifice and the, 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 just the grace that this demonstrates. When my dad was in junior high, he had a friend whose oldest sister was the victim of a violent crime. And they found the, the gentleman who perpetrated the crime. They found him guilty. And it came time to sentence this man who happened to be her classmate, someone she went to school with. And it came time to sentence him. And as the judge stood there, sat there, and asked for victim statements, her dad got up to talk. And what her dad said was, I would like to ask that you give him mercy. This, this man, this young man, who had violated and murdered his daughter, her dad asked for mercy. And he said this, because the death penalty was a possible punishment. And he said, if you kill him, if he dies, he may never come to know Jesus. So I'd like you excuse me, I'd like for you to let him live so that one day he could come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that one day he could turn from his sins and put his faith in my Savior. His name's Mr. Elsie. I always like to share his name. I don't think he's with us anymore, but I just love the example. Can you imagine that? Your little girl is the victim of this crime, and yet you go and you plead for mercy against the one who did this horrible thing to your little girl, not because you don't, I'm sure every fiber in his beating wanted to scream out for vengeance, but he said, you know what, more than I want vengeance on this life, I want this person to come to know Jesus like I know Jesus. I want them, I treasure Christ more than I treasure temporary justice. And because I know what Christ done, did on my behalf, I want others to know that as well. And so he advocated on behalf of this criminal. The one person who was most hurt by the sin of this man, he advocated on his behalf. That pales in comparison to what Christ does for us. Because you know what, Mr. Elsie, from all I know about him, was a great man, but he wasn't perfect. But the perfect one who took the penalty for our sins stands before a completely righteous judge, a complete, a judge who will always dispense justice. And he pleads for us. He comes alongside us. He makes our case, even though he was the very one who took the penalty for our sins. The one who was condemned for my sake and for your sake loves us so much that he petitions on our behalf. That's an amazing love. That's an astounding love. And John tells us how we should respond to that great love. 
If you'll look back with me in verse 3, He's talked about Jesus as the advocate. Jesus is the propitiation, the one who has paid the penalty for our sins. And then he says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we know that we have come to know him. And that knowledge, when it says that come to know him, that's not like I have sufficient evidence to understand him. Like like if you were to say to me, do you know who the president of the United States is? And I said, yeah, I know it's, you know, Donald Trump is the president, Right? That's, it's not that. It's not like my husband, if you were to ask him today, are the Lakers going to win the NBA finals? And he said, yeah, I know that they are. Right? It's not, there's two more games left at least to play if you're not an NBA fan. So he doesn't really know that. Right? But he, just, he has confidence of it because of there's sufficient evidence. Right? Or if you're, you're standing and you're talking to your friend about what outfit to buy, and she says, well, I know that will look good on you. Right? That's that's not that kind of knowledge. That's not what the word that John is using here. The word that John is using here is not a strong feeling, right? It is, as one dictionary defines it, this knowing is grasping the full reality and nature of an object under consideration. Grasping the full reality and nature of who Jesus is. That's what John's saying. And how do we know that we've grasped what Christ has done for us? How do we know that we fully understand the reality of what it means that Christ is our advocate and that he has paid the penalty on our behalf? How do we know that? If we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. The love of God is perfected. Those who have been redeemed by their Savior will have radically transformed lives. And then as he says in verse 6, whoever says he abides in it, if you say that you are in Christ, you should walk as Christ did. Your life should increasingly look like your Savior's. If you are his child. Or in other words, as I said in point three, we need to do what your Savior commands. We need to do what your Savior commands. When we grasp the full reality of who Jesus is, we will do what he says. We will do what he says. Obedience is evidence that we understand who Christ is that we recognize the darkness of sin and that we desire to be in the light because he is the light and we want our life to look like his. Now it's important to recognize two things. One is the converse of that statement that if we know Jesus and we love Jesus, we will obey him. The converse of that statement is also true. If we don't obey Jesus, if we don't do what our Savior commands, that's pretty strong evidence that we don't know him or love him at all. We also want to make sure that we don't get that order mixed up. We don't say, well, we obey and therefore we have a Savior. We have a Savior who we love. And because of our love for him, we will do what he says. 
When John wrote these important truths, he addressed these readers as my dear children, that term of affection that we talked about earlier. And I think it's appropriate that we talk about obedience and we talk about rules and commands that we think of children. Because if you think about it, kids have a lot of rules. And oftentimes we can see in representation in these little people how we approach Christ's commands. I have two kids and I get to be around kids a lot as a result of that. And you know what? There are different ways that kids approach rules. There are some kids who think rules are made to be broken. They think those are there to show me what boundaries I'm gonna go over. There are other kids who break the rules, but they are just trying not to get caught, right? Their goal is, hey, I'm gonna break the rule, but I don't want anyone to know I broke the rule because I don't wanna get caught. I am fearful of punishment. There are other kids who say, well, the rules are one thing, but really what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go along with the crowd. Whatever the crowd's doing, that's what I'm gonna do. And then there are those precious few kids who if you ask them why they keep the rules, it is because they don't want to hear these words from their mom and dad. They don't want to hear, I'm so disappointed in you. You see, these kids, they don't keep the rules. They don't follow the rules out of a sense of fear of punishment or out of a sense of duty. They follow the rules because they love and respect their parents so much that they don't want to do anything to cause a fracture in that relationship. They don't want to do anything that would diminish that relationship they have with their mom and dad. The love and the respect that they have for their parents is so intense that they want to live their lives in such a way that it pleases them. Friends, let's be that kind of children of our Heavenly Father. Let's love our Savior like this. Let's love him so much that we don't want to do anything that would cause any type of fissure, any type of fracture, any type of break in our relationship with God. Help us, let us know what honors him and desire to give him glory. Let us know what pleases him and let us commit to doing those things. Last week, Heather asked us, she said, this is going to get tough. This is going to get personal. I'm going to ask you, this was Heather, not me. I'm going to ask you, what sin has God revealed to you this week? That's a, that's a tough question. That's a heavy question. That's a personal question. I want to build on what Heather said, and I want to take it a step further. Not only what sin has God revealed to you this week, but what areas in your life are you not doing what your Savior commands? In what areas of our lives are we not faithful to obey him? In what areas of our life are we not demonstrating our love and respect and affection for our Savior by faithfully following what he has told us to do? Ladies, let's prove by our words, our actions, our attitudes, and our desires that we fully grasp who our Savior is and what he has done on our behalf. And let us turn from sin and live obediently because more than anything else, we love him. Let's pray.
Father, how great your love is for us. It's not something that we can fully grasp. But Father, you loved us so much. You love us so much. And we're so thankful for that. I ask, Father, that we would increasingly know and understand and embrace and treasure what Christ does on our behalf, the work that he has accomplished and the work that he continues to do. And in response to that, that we would live lives of increasing obedience. Father, I ask that you be with each of us as we go into our small groups. Father, help it to be a rich time of fellowship. But even more than that, Father, help it to be a rich time of renewed commitment to live according to your word. Help us to come alongside our sisters and help us to spur each other on to a life that increasingly looks like your son's. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.